think a lot about what it does to us to have those videos in our heads all the time, that you and I can see those videos and more in our short-term memory at any time. And the impact on all of us walking around with that weight in our heads all the time, it's, um, it's tremendous. It's, it's the part of being trauma, it's the, the part of trauma of being black in America. And I write about that trauma in my vanishing country. My trauma may not be yours, but we can understand each other's traumas. We can understand perseverance. We can be compassionate and empathetic. And I think then we can actually have valuable conversations that begin to heal, which is what most black folk want to do. I mean, we want to stop living in pain every fucking day. Bakari Sellers is one of the best political analysts out right now, partly because he's been inside the political system. He was a member of South Carolina's House of Representatives for years, so he really understands politics. Sellers is the author of My Vanishing Country, a new book where he talks about the forgotten people of the rural South. You'll get half of this interview with Bakari here. For the other half, go to patreon.com slash show and also get access to my Patreon exclusives with Malcolm Gladwell, Jelani Cobb, Neil deGrasse Tyson, and more. For now, it's Bakari Sellers on Torre Show. Your book's called uh, My Vanishing Country. Who's who's vanishing? What's happening? So, I mean, that's a good question. So there, there, there are two things. Um, it's coming from the poor rural South. Um, from, it used to be a community of full of upward mobility, especially for people of color. Um, we had railroad tracks that went north, south, east, and west. We had Highway 321, which was the precursor to I-95. Um, we had our downtown had a record store, Five and Dime. I mean, it was, it was bubbling like many small towns throughout America, especially the rural South. Um, and now that's vanishing. That's totally disappearing after trade. Uh, many of these um, poor black communities have just been left behind. So very tangibly for me, it's where I'm from. And the voices, these people, our livelihoods, our communities are vanishing right before our eyes. But from a 50,000 foot view, um, many of these ideals that we believe this country um, uh, promises us, uh, many of those ideals such as life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. Um, they're vanishing before our eyes for many people in this country. I, I don't think that people can uh, be honest with themselves and look at the culture and climate we're in and think that um, those goals are ascertainable um, to to us all. And so growing up a, <clears throat> a child of the movement, um, a black man in this country, I, I wanted people to get a true descriptor of the state of our, of our union, um, pushing it to be a more perfect union. Trump, uh, of course, talks about the forgotten man. I assume you're talking about something different. I mean, he does seem to be talking about something similar of the decimation of rural areas, southern areas, midwestern areas. Are is there overlap? Um, it might. Uh, it, it may be an overlap, but the fact is that in this country, the media both Democrats and Republicans, especially Donald Trump, when you say rural, they mean white. They mean Gretchen yeah. Whitmer and Amy Klobuchar. And what I'm telling you, though, is that there are voices who have been screaming for a long time that are unheard. There are voices that have been forgotten. And for people of color, what they've done is every ounce of, of Black cultural liberation ideology emerges from the South. I know that's a bold statement, but I'm going to stick with it. 
um, because I, I I believe that the lessons that we learned from the Ella Bakers, the Fannie Lou Hamers, the Majeska Simpkins and Septima Clarks, Julians and Marians and my father, all of that culture of, of striving for um, those not so tangible ideals, um, trying to get this country to fulfill its promise, emerged from the South. And right now those voices are being ignored by us all. And so I wanted to give, this book gives voice to those, to those voices. Liber, you said liberation, the uh, black liberation theology emerges from the South. Black cultural liberation ideology. So uh, not to be argumentative, but Malcolm X. To, yeah, you, I mean, we, we're, we're going to argue about, I, I know we're going to get to Jordan in a minute, but we're going to focus on, on this right now. We're going to be argumentative. I, I mean, not to, I mean, it, it, to take nothing away from the incredible importance of the South, Dr. King, et cetera. But, you know, Malcolm X's movement is firmly from New York, right. continues to have a massive impact on black and brown people. Um, and the Black Panther movement is very much a West Coast movement. That's not, though. The Black Panther movement is a Lowndes County, Alabama movement. Uh, the Lowndes County, uh, the Black Panthers weren't started in California. The, the Black I, Panthers. I, I, I know that. I know that history. <laughs> I but know. The, the, what Huey Newton, um, Eldridge Cleaver, and Stokely Carmichael were doing, that was a clearly West Coast movement. Right. But Fred Stokely, Hampton, but Chicago Stokely and Stokely and, and Eldridge, they emerge from the Greenwood, Mississippi's. Um, now, don't get me wrong. Stokely is, is from uh, uh, he's he's from the Caribbean by way of the Bronx went to Howard University. His, he and my father were actually roommates at Howard. Um, my son is named Stokely after Stokely Carmichael. We call him Uncle Stokely because um, that's who we uh, we grew up with Stokely um, often. Um, but Stokely and SNCC. Um, kind of uh, made his bones um, in the South. And I understand that my statement is, is one of, uh, that, that we can actually have an argument about, but I appreciate that argument because we're talking about our history and we're talking about the emergence of black power, not the black power that scares white folk per se, but the black power that talks about political power, that talks about economic power, that talks about having control of our own destiny. And I think that's rooted in the South. And yes, I am biased and I know that and it's showing. Well- to get to the core of the point you're making and some of the book, tell me about the South. Tell us about the modern South and how is it for black people now? Is it just as bad as we thought and we heard about, you know, decades ago? Or, or, or you know, is there some improvement happening? I know, I mean, you know, our brother Ahmad Arbery just got lynched, yep. right? Um, you know, that seems like the deep South has not changed. A good old fashioned South Georgia father son lynching is what what that what happened. Um, you asked a good question, um, and the answer to the, the answer to the question is that we are not even growing socially, economically, educationally. Um, slowly, we're declining. Um, where I'm from, Denmark, right about, we don't have clean water. Um, a lot like Flint, Michigan. Um, you have people who are inhaling. Um, pollutants and the environmental injustices throughout the South are rampant. We have a quarter of shame. Kids go to school and their heating and air don't work. Their infrastructure is falling apart. Um, throughout the South, many governors didn't expand Medicaid. And so you've had a loss of access to quality health care. My hospital shut down in 2010. Um, food deserts are very prevalent throughout the South. And I, I find myself having to explain um, food deserts and the fact that um, many people go hungry 
um, or don't have access to healthy fruits and, and vegetables um, because they live in these food deserts. And so that is the condition of the South today. There still is, it still is a community and communities that are brimming with hope um, because these are the communities where the church was the epicenter of change, where um, they had that type of political power. Um, they're able to touch that type of political power, but yet and still um, these voices are, are, are yelling out for change. And I'll write about that. And before we were born and when we were young, the migration was out of the South, right? Mm -hmm. And in the recent decades, a lot of Black people are returning to the South, especially the cities, but other areas as well. So is there a sense of Black political power rising because the numbers are rising or no? Um, so you have the largest concentration of Black elected officials throughout the South. I want to say Mississippi has the most black state legislators um, in the country. Um, Alabama has a great deal. South Carolina, Georgia. Um, you just have the sheer population. I mean, a, a third of our state in South Carolina is African-American. It's a little bit more than that in Mississippi. Um, but you aren't seeing people able to chip away at that glass. I write about my run, my run for lieutenant governor. Uh, it was before I, my friend Andrew Gillum and before my friend Stacey Abrams ran for statewide office. I got 42% of the vote. We chipped away at the glass, weren't able to shatter it. Andrew and Stacey, they chipped away at the glass, weren't able to shatter it. And so we made a lot of progress in this country, Teray, but we still have such a long way to go. You talk about um, running for lieutenant governor, and I know you think a lot about politics. And I'm just curious your thoughts on like what a black person needs to do in this country to win an election at any level. Right. Just what are some of the core things that you need to think about and to do and to have about you to go about, like, actually, you know, getting the victory? So I think it, I think it, it, it's uh, that question and the answer to that question is determinative on, on where you are. I think that it's vastly different how a black person runs in the deep south versus how a black person runs in L.A. or, or New York City or Massachusetts. Um, issues of race. Um, are at the forefront. I'll give you the perfect example. I served in the South with the youngest black elected official in these United States of America. I got elected in 2006. I remind people often that back then um, we weren't looking up to Barack Obama. He was somebody who had just given a great speech in 2004, but he hadn't reached the, the mountaintop by any stretch. We looked up to Deval Patrick because Deval Patrick at that time was a two-time uh, going into a second term as, as governor. And that was like, oh my God, we have a black governor. Um, and so everybody wanted my to, state. I was like, heck yeah. Everybody wanted to see how they could emulate that path. Um, but I served for eight years in the general assembly. I just retired in 2014, got placed into retirement. I'm using air quotes. Uh, and every day that I had a rough day, I had to go outside and take a deep breath under the auspices of the Confederate flag. This is in 2006 to 2014. Race is an issue that is, is, is there. It's always apparent. Um, you have to be unapologetic. You have to live in your truth, but you have to compel. The funny part is when I ran for lieutenant governor, I had to get about two out of every 10 white people in South Carolina to vote for me. Just two. And I failed royally at that. <laughs> and people are like, people are like, what? You had to get two like this. It's, a, it's like 2.3, 2.4 out of every white person to vote for you. And I, 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 I didn't do it. Democrats are unable to do it in Alabama. They're unable to do it in, in, uh, in Georgia, South Carolina. Although I think they did it in Georgia, but I digress. Um, South Carolina, North Carolina is a little different. Um, Virginia is a little different um, because you have those epicenters of higher education and technology and science that, that 
diverge. And so you have a different... The Democratic Party in the South has a serious problem, right? Correct. It's, yes, it's the Democratic Party in the South, not just being black in the South. Yeah. How do we, how do we get past that? There has to be, it has to be generational change and demographic change. Um, In the next 10 to 15 years, there is a, my dad's generation, you, you, for every civil rights hero like my father, there are 10, 15, 20, 30 people who believe um, or do not give people of color the benefit of their humanity. They think Ahmaud Arbery deserved the death penalty or death sentence on the hot streets of Brunswick, Georgia. And so it's generational. Um, that will change. It's demographic. Georgia is becoming browner. A lot of these places are becoming browner. Um, not Arizona's more com- Georgia's more comparable to Arizona than anything else in terms of its demographic changes. Um, and so as we have this browning of America that Stephen Miller and Donald Trump were deathly afraid of, mm. um, I think you'll have an opportunity to change that. But it won't just happen over sh- on sheer will. It's going to take generations and, and demographics. We live in a world where you can get anything you need delivered to your door thanks to DoorDash. If you don't want to do the dishes or you feel a little sick, let DoorDash bring dinner tonight. My family uses DoorDash all the time because it connects us to our favorite restaurants without us having to drive. Last night, we got some Indian food for my wife, some gumbo for me, and sushi for the kids. And everyone was happy, and we didn't have to do the dishes. The process of ordering was quick and easy, and I love DoorDash for real. So I was so happy to do this for them because I'm a customer, because I know DoorDash is your door to more. Must be over 21 to order alcohol. Alcohol available only in select markets. DoorDash, your door to more. Download the DoorDash app now to get almost anything delivered. One of the people who helped inspire me to want to be in broadcasting is Oprah Winfrey. She's an inspiration for so many of us, but her daytime talk show was so incredible. And it told me that you could be black and authentic and real on TV. And that made me want to do it, too. Black Stories, Black Truths is NPR's new collection that's a celebration of blackness. Each of NPR's black voices are as direct, varied, distinct and nuanced as the black experience itself. In the Black Stories, Black Truths collection, you'll hear stories of joy, resilience, empowerment, and how to create world-shifting things out of struggle. Every episode is a living account of what it means to be Black today, told from a unique Black perspective. Black perspectives that haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story, but now they are the story. On NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of some of NPR's best podcast episodes celebrating the Black experience. Hear a feed of episodes from across NPR's podcasts that center Black voices. Turn on NPR today and hear a range of voices as varied, as nuanced, and as Black as we are. Stories should never be about us without us. Listen now to Black Stories, Black Truths from NPR, wherever you get your podcasts. Influencer. It's a word that gets tossed around a lot these days. There is a woman who went the distance, who broke ground as the first 
true influencer by living a remarkable life. Her name, Elizabeth Taylor. I'm Katy Perry. This is the story of the original influencer. This is Elizabeth I. Elizabeth I, the podcast, wherever you listen. I, I mean, I am, a, I, I am not confident that as time goes on, people will just become less racist. Uh, millennials remain, uh, white millennials remain just as in favor of the Republican Party as, as Gen Xers and boomers, right? So it's not just that as they get, you know, as time goes on, they just sort of grow. You know, there are more black and brown millennials than others, but in other generations. But the problem is not just sort of like, will people will just age out of racism. No, no, no. But I do think that those hard and racist, those racists who had no knowledge of a black person being in a position of power, who utilize brute force and sheer trauma and violence to prevent, prevent that from happening will um, no longer be here due to um, the fact that they just can't live that long. And so there, there is an entire generation that will, um, that will no longer be here. They can't Im- impact the political system. But I, I do think you're right. I mean, the perfect example of what you're talking about is Dylan Roof was 21 years old. Yep. Dylan Roof had more hate in his heart than George Wallace or Lester, Lester Maddox. Um, and the question is, how can you raise somebody who will, who, who chooses one of the oldest, most famous black churches in the country and goes and murders my good friend and eight others during Bible study? And so you're, you, you, that is proof positive of what you're saying. But don't take away all my faith and hope, Teray. I want to have <laughs> faith and hope, man. <laughs> well, faith and hope. I want to come back to the Southern politics, but I do want to touch on um, this. The you're doing the the CNN Black Show. Is that what it's called? The Black Show, right? What? You you and Angela and Andrew Gillum and oh, who's I, the other well, one? I'm is, hopeful. Is I don't know. Who's the, who's the other? April Ryan. April Ryan. Uh, the, it's we, called the Black Show, right? No, no, it's not. It's it's called BET. No, it's not. It's uh, we we were. Uh, <laughs> No, I, I mean, listen, I, CNN has been so good to me. Yeah, I'm, listen, my hometown has 3,300 people. And every night I go on Don Lemon, I get to speak to a million. You know how dope that is? I mean, that's just, that's just surreal. Um, that's a million in the demo or the million, the raw uh, number? Raw numbers, man. Come on, don't, <laughs> we don't need to break down the demo, okay? Although Don is crushing it. That's not good. We only, we only care about the demo. We don't care yeah, about the raw Look at you. Slicing my argument up. Yes, we, he does well in the demo, too. He's no, good. I mean, half a million in the demo is incredible. Yeah. I mean, right now, just a few hundred thousand in the demo is, is incredible. Um, but shout out. No, they give, him, they give me a, a great... I, I would love to have more opportunity. And I keep pushing for opportunity and trying to get better at my craft so that I can... So that I'm deserving of that opportunity. Um, I don't think that show will happen, um, but I think it's really a dope concept. I think it's a dope concept too, and I think that it would be something that I and a lot of other Black people who care about politics would say that's a destination for me. And yep. you know, one thing about CNN and MSNBC as well is that there's it's generally news driven, right? I will watch Don Lemon if something hot is happening. Mm-hmm. But if the news doesn't drive me, drag me in, then I'm like, well, you know, I will watch SportsCenter or whatever. Yeah. But something like that, like the four of you who I know and respect, I would be like, yo, I want to see what they have to talk about no matter what. It is. Yeah. And I, um, 
I'm hopeful we'll get to the point where that can happen. Um, you know, we still only have two black prime time television anchors on, on all of broadcast and cable TV. Only two. We have Don Lemon and we have Lester Holt. That's it. And so we haven't made it as far as we, we should. And you, you get this. And I write about it in my book, too. The pressure of going on TV, being one of the very few black voices that people hear, um, is awesome. In the truest sense of the word, awesome. You can't have bad days because the way that the way that the world sees you, and I say this with every ounce of humility, the way that the world sees you will be a reflection in the way that they see other black men Absolutely. in their daily lives. And so, Absolutely. you know, you can't go out there and have a bad day. You can't you can't caricature yourself. I, I felt the pressure immensely. And I also felt I'm at an intersection because I do want to represent what black people feel and are saying but I don't want to just be a mouthpiece for us. And sometimes I might want to be critical. Sometimes I might disagree with what people are saying. Sometimes I might want to say something that challenges or questions or what have you. And you don't always feel, it's definitely like roiling in your mind. You sort of hear the audience and like, what do they want? How do I interact with that? You know, I guess that would be a branch of stereotype threat. Um, that, that you're sort of interacting with what the yeah. audience and what they're saying about you. Um, and I'm sure you're going through that yourself when you're figuring out what am I going to say? I do, but I always land on just very emotionally being speaking the truth, trying to give a lot of that trauma that we go through. Um, I, I'll tell you the perfect example. I did, um, and, and this is embarrassing because I cannot remember who, who it was. We had, a, we had an unarmed black team but was killed by police. And I was on Aaron Burnett's show and I said, I just want, I was, it was painful. It was traumatic. I said, I just want to to stop killing us. The next morning, that's when the Dallas police officers were shot. Mm. Um, and so I was in studio all night. They called me to run back because it was breaking news in the morning that the Dallas police officers had been shot at a Black Lives Matter rally. Um, and so I had to cover both of those things and it was draining. It was exhausting. And I wanted to, um, you know, we, we have a platform and I think that we have a platform and I think that our people trust us, particularly you enough to give you the leeway that even when you are challenging, they take it from a place of respect and they become, they, they think critically about it. So yes, you can be challenging and you can be a voice to give life to these traumatic experiences we face. And I don't think you have to pick or choose. I think you can do them all. Ooh, but you can lose them real fast, right? I you mean, can lose like- them on Twitter. But Twitter <laughs> is not real life. Twitter okay? is not real life. You know, Don Lemon's had an interesting... Uh, I think up and down. I think there was a period when a lot of black people were like, we're not feeling Don. You know, he seems to be moving in a different direction around 2016. And I think in 2017, 2018, he was really strong anti-Trump. And people were like, you know, we're feeling him again. Don is just good because Don is speaking his truth and living his truth as a black man from Louisiana, from Baton Rouge, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. You hear my twin in the background. So, all right, that's just. How old? 16 months. What does eating healthy mean to you? 
Whatever your eating goals, Thrive Market is the best place to get all your groceries and household essentials. And getting Thrive shipped to your door is like having a great supermarket right outside your house. I love that Thrive Market carries brands with the highest quality ingredients and ethical sourcing methods. Whether you're looking for organic kid snacks or low sugar alternatives or gluten-free essentials, Thrive Market's got it and their site lets you curate your shopping experience quickly. And as a Thrive member, I save on every order, usually about 30%, which of course I love. And when you join, you help a family in need with the membership matching program. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order plus a $60 gift for free. Go to thrivemarket.com slash for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E Market. Dot com slash thrivemarket.com slash On March 16, 2000, two sheriff's deputies were shot in Atlanta. Jamil Alamine, a Muslim leader and former black power activist, was convicted. But the evidence was shaky, and the whole truth didn't come out during the trial. My name is Mosi Secret, and when I started investigating this case in my hometown, I uncovered a dark truth about America. From Tinderfoot TV, Campside Media, and iHeart Podcasts, Radical is available now. Listen to the new podcast, Radical, for free on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. One is sleep and one is crying. So uh, that's, yeah, you want to come, you will package them up as one boy, one girl. You 16 bucks is a lot of work. That's a whole lot of work. A whole lot of work. Man-to-man defense. Um, but no, Don <laughs> is, Don is, Don is doing extremely well now. He's a really good friend of mine and he is, uh, he's, he's speaking his truth, which I can't be mad at. If you love Torre Show and you miss the days of me talking about politics on MSNBC, and really, who doesn't, then check out my other podcast, Democracy-ish, where I sit with Danielle Moody-Mills and argue and strategize about the 2020 race from a black and progressive perspective. We're still trying to convince white people that we are not chattel, that we are actual human beings when we're being slaughtered in the streets as dogs. You can find Democracy-ish wherever podcasts are streamed. All right, back to Torre Show. I know one black um, political analyst who worked at Fox and I was talking to him occasionally. And um, when Obama debated Romney the first time and I wanted to go out and say, of course, Obama won the debate. Romney lied about all his positions. And just because he was emotionally amped which up. Debate, which debate was this? The first one, I believe it was Denver, when Denver Romney was. looked like he had a, a, a caffeine for the first time in his life, and Obama was very mellow. Obama was like, why am I here? Yes, why yeah. am I here? And, <laughs> and the theater reviewers were like, Obama seemed depressed, Romney was energized, Romney wins. And I'm like, Romney did not tell the truth about any of his positions. That That's immediately disqualifying. Yeah, and yeah. I was told by my community... You can't say that because your position will be discounted because you're the only person saying Obama won and you're black. So, of course, you're just saying it because and and I was like, wow, OK, you know, and somebody else was saying at Fox was like, I, too, saw Obama winning and was told if you go out and say that you will look like a fool who's in for Obama. So you can't say that you saw something I didn't see because I thought Obama looked aloof. 
And I thought he looked like, now don't, I, 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 I love debating and love watching debating, but Barack Obama looked like he had other things to do that night. Uh, and you could tell he didn't prepare as president of the United States the way he should have, especially when you contrast that first debate with the second debate. But do debates even matter anymore? <laughs> Well, they, 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 that I mean, yes, debates don't matter, and we're going in a slightly different direction. But no, I don't think the debates matter. I think it's a spectacle that perhaps should be ended in favor of what we call a town hall. You know, because there's no point in which somebody runs into the Oval Office and says, "You have 30 seconds to articulate your position on what's going on in Saudi Arabia." Go, like, okay, that's enough. Like, now talk about healthcare for 60 seconds. Go. Yeah, did, like, you hear, did you hear what that person at the end of the stage said about you, who you don't know and don't care about? Do you care to respond? Like, right. No, no. I mean, and, you know, we get as viewers get a much better understanding of who you are in that long form 30 to 60 minute setting where it's like, let's have a conversation about healthcare and see where it goes. Let voters ask you a question that you have to respond to. Exactly. And I think that. But. I'm still not sure how valuable that would be because we're seeing someone in the White House who uh, ascribes to the notion and culture of anti-intellectualism. Yes. Um, who, um, he reminds me eerily of Kanye West, but I digress. <laughs> um, I, I, I truly understand the psychopathy that brings them together. I really did. Um, we have somebody who doesn't believe in science, who doesn't believe in facts. Media who pulled off the biggest con in the history of mankind. He has working class white folk believing he cares about them and he shits on a golden toilet. Like how, how that, that is one of the largest, biggest cons I've ever, I think we've ever seen in, in mainstream politics. But, and isn't, he's norms. but isn't everything you're saying here, the modern Republican party just sort of pointed into one person that they have for decades made the common working man think we are for you when they are really the party of wealth. They are anti-media, anti-science, anti-fact, anti-elite. Uh, this is who they have been for several decades. I think he represent. I think that he represented. This is past tense. Such a small portion of the Republican Party, and won by accident. There were far too many people running for president of the United States in that primary. And then he has this unique ability to bend people's, bend grown men's will around him. I mean, the, the people who he puts around him, who all of a sudden melt in him, in his hands and conform to his beliefs. It's just, I'm not a psychologist, but I, I want to read that book, whoever writes that book, because there is a, there is a long list of people who've come in his presence. I used to, I mean, I used to hang out with, um, with, with, uh, you know, no, no Rance Priebus back when he was, you know, chair of the party. You know, you see him everywhere. Um, you know, Rance went to um, went to Trump Tower to tell him to get out the race after that Access Hollywood tape came out. You know, they they Lindsey Graham and Nikki Haley, they spoke out about him like he was the bane of their existence. And Ted the Cruz. only Ted Cruz. I mean, that man talked trash about that man's daddy and wife and showed up in the middle of his speech like he was in WWE. Right. Remember that? He just towered down. And so. I don't understand it at all. Um, I want to beat it. I, I am 
And but the, the the common theme that you have is people like Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump who still talk about Barack Obama the way that they do, and it goes to the, the value of of black lives. It goes to how they treat black people and what the if you can talk that way about a black president of the United States who's editor in chief of the law review, uh, then um, at Harvard, then you know there's no there's no bounds for you. Uh, <clears throat> do you see him winning? It's going to be close. I think if the election was today, he would not. It's hard to recover from uh, 90,000 people dying and 36 million people unemployed on your watch. I mean, it's just hard. Um, in election be, year. In election year. I mean, this didn't happen in his first year. This happened, you're right, in election year. In the middle of the election year, like, hey, like, like 20% unemployment, 40% approval rating. Those are two key metrics, and he is at historic highs with both of them. Very, very difficult. But I'm also the man who told you that Hillary Clinton would be president of the United States, so we probably need to go to the next question because I don't get this stuff right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, does it matter if Joe Biden picks a black vice president? Yes. Is that the difference between winning and losing? It can be the difference along the margins. See, what's going to happen and what people aren't really paying attention to is black people are going to vote. The people, the black voters are going to vote. I mean, people, super voters, the people who vote in every elect, my mama and them go vote. They're not going to work, though, if it's, you know, Gretchen or Amy. But if it's Kamala or Val Demings, if it's Marsha Fudge, they're going to be out there. They're going to be dragging their cousins. They're going to be getting their nephews who didn't vote or who are. Um, unfortunately, like a lot of black men in this country, new swing voters, they, they either vote Democrat or they choose the couch. Um, they are going to, they're going to work for you. They're going to, they're going to do their phone trees. They're going to make sure that all their relatives vote. And if that, if they don't have a reason to do that, we could lose along around the margins. I wonder if in an era of Corona, when the race seems to be basically frozen right now, right? Biden and Trump would be out doing rallies and meeting voters now, and they're not. Um, and that will probably persist at least through the summer. Um, you know, we may not see rallies for the rest of the race at all, at least not on the Biden side. Maybe Trump will do it. But do you need somebody who is already a household name yes. like Kamala and Elizabeth Warren, as opposed to yes. Marsha Fudge, Val Demings and even Stacey Abrams? Stacey Abrams. Who, uh, that's my that, that's wonderful so the, people, it, but they are not household names. They're not household names. And usually you only have from July or August through November to introduce your vice president. You know how many people in this country still do not know who Tim Kaine is? Right. And as much as we know and love Stacey Abrams, love and adore Stacey Abrams, the overwhelming majority of the public, voting public, does not. You won't have enough time to introduce her, and you can't introduce her in the same fashion with virtual events and everything else. So that, and, and not to mention that it's very difficult to go from the state legislature to one step away from being president, regardless of Donald Trump not having any experience. I don't think anybody ever wants to do that again, but it's very difficult to do that. I I don't think the Democratic Party would do that because we believe in the importance of government for a party like the GOP that doesn't believe in big government. Sure, throw up this guy who knows nothing about it. That's part of the drain the swamp thing. But I think that, I mean, I I think, I mean, you throw out some names. I think that the the strongest names out there right now, of course, are are Kamala, probably one in my my book, but Kamala, Amy Klobuchar, um, um, uh, Cortez Mesta, 
and Susan Ryan's are probably the four with probably Gretchen Whitmer being evaluated as well. I think those are the individuals. And I think Gretchen Whitmer falls into the same category that we talked about earlier, of just not, not having any national national prominence. I wonder about Kamala. I know her. I love her. I, she was my, you know, hope for president um, when we were really first getting in this whole mix. Um, black people did not coalesce around her candidacy, right? Biden blotted out the sun among black voters the whole time. Correct. And if you're choosing Kamala to bring in black voters, which she was not really able to do previously, does that, how does that argument work? So I think that you're looking at it, you're looking at different metrics. I think that the primary is vastly different from, this ain't, this ain't warm-ups normal, right? Okay. And it's game time. And I think that Kamala in very specific areas like Pennsylvania and Philly, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Detroit, Michigan, Atlanta, Georgia, Charlotte, North Carolina, Tallahassee, Miami, Florida will do extremely well. Um, I just ran down Charlotte, North Carolina, like the swing states, right? Yeah. And I think she brings that. I think she goes around the edges and she brings those people out. I think that's very, very, very important. She's a dynamic figure. She's going she's gonna to kick Mike Pence's ass on a debate stage. I mean, just where? But, but that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. But for me, it's good. I want my daughter to watch that. I mean, and sure. also, also, do you know how hard we're going to work like we work for Barack Obama if there's a chance a black woman is going to be BVP? That's a fact. Really? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, let me let me back up. That's not an accurate statement. Black women are going to work as hard as they work for Barack Obama if there's a black woman VP. Black men, I think we have a lot of work to do. And in fact, I'm, I'm working on efforts right now to um, um, because the Democratic Party has let black men down. We have we've never we haven't messaged to black men. We haven't spoken to them. That's why 13 percent of them voted for Donald Trump. That and mm. Mm. that's that's embarrassing. Do you understand why 13% of us voted for Donald Trump? Uh, misogyny and there was Donald Trump actually messaged. So we're going to have company real quick. I'm sorry. But we all have. He joins me midday after nap time for all of my interviews. So Hi. hey, Uncle Teray, this is Stokely, the namesake Hi. Stokely Carmichael. How are you? We were just in here just chat and take your mouthpiece out. My mommy hates it. Mommy hates when daddy calls it a mouthpiece. and he frowned up at me um it is embarrassing there's a great deal of misogyny um there was a and donald trump filled the void when we had a lack of messaging donald trump filled that void um with a messaging to black black people as simple as it was but there was no other messaging there nobody nobody spoke to black men nobody did Thanks so much to Bakari for a great interview, and thanks to you for listening. And thanks to our super producers, Britt, Marcus Harkis, Noel, Sam Montes, Jason Reynolds, and Gerville Calais. Join us over at patreon.com slash show to get an extra episode every Friday only for Patreon subscribers. And of course, get the other half of this interview between me and Bakari. Torre Show gives you fuel to power your dreams because you can use your dreams like a rocket ship to blast you into a life you never imagined. You can make your dreams a reality, and this show can help. You can find me on Twitter at Torre and on Instagram at Torre Show and on Patreon at patreon.com slash Torre Show. 
Torre Show is written by me, Torre, and produced by Jackie Garifano. Our editor is Ryan Woodhall. Our photographers are Chuck Marcus and Shanta Covington. Our booker is Claudia Jean. And we're distributed by DCP Entertainment. And we will be back on Friday and on Wednesday with the more amazing guests because the man can't shut us down. 